Are you passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created? Well, the Product Launch Rebel Podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of VentureSuperfly.com, John Benzik. Greetings, Product Launch Rebels, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel Podcast. I am your host, John Benzik, from VentureSuperfly.com, the website that helps you double your entrepreneurial courage, even if you don't know what you're doing. Today, my very special guest is Zachary Quinn. He's the co-founder of Love Your Melon. Zachary is 24 years old and a college dropout that turned a class project into a multi-million dollar company to help kids with cancer. The apparel company specializes in headwear and donates 50% of profits to partners fighting pediatric cancer. In the past four years, Love Your Melon has donated $2.6 million to cancer research, and they've created a network of over 12,000 student volunteers across the country. I'll also add that Zachary's particular mission is near and dear to my heart since my cousin Dana had recently lost her eight-year-old son to cancer, which was an awfully tragic experience. And so Love Your Melon is truly fighting the best of all battles, and all the great thanks goes out to Zachary for that. To learn more about Zachary and his company and to join a great cause, visit loveyourmelon.com. Zachary, thanks for taking the time to join me here, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. Thank you, John, for having me. Terrific. Zachary, so within this podcast, there are three segments. The first is called Give Me the Basics, which helps set the context about your company for our listeners. The second part is what I call Tell Me How, where we'll get to the heart of the matter on issues that aspiring entrepreneurs want to know now to help them move forward. And the final part is the let's get personal piece where we get into some of the more personal topics about what it's like to start a business. Zachary, are you ready? Should we get into some questions? Yeah, let's go for it. I'll give you the basics. (laughs) All right. Zachary, so tell us the story. How did you originally come up with the idea of offering hats for the benefit of children with cancer. So I was in an entrepreneurship class at the University of St. Thomas. It was my sophomore year. And I was in a group project with Brian Keller, my soon-to-be friend we had just met. And we were sitting down trying to come up with great entrepreneurial ideas to start our business with for the class project. And Brian and I landed on wanting to create a beanie company. We wanted to design a cool beanie because we saw... All of our friends had beanies from the Minnesota Vikings or the Wild or John Deere Tractor, and they were all branded by like these sports teams or companies that didn't actually make beanies. And so we were like, okay, this is a cool opportunity to take over the market and to create a cool, fashionable beanie that people will want to wear when it's so cold in Minnesota all the time. So with that, we also simultaneously had the desire to make a difference because we were only doing this for, in our minds, a semester. 
And so the class requirement to make a profit wasn't our only desire to accomplish. We wanted to also help somebody else. And so as we were thinking about how with our beanie company we could help other people, we landed on the idea of helping kids battling cancer. And we identified kids battling cancer as a population of individuals that are often not funded in the research, in the treatment, in all the different financial needs and other needs, therapeutic needs, while they're going through their treatment. So when we identified them, we first thought we were going to give away money. But we were reading Tom Shue's book, Blake Mikowski's book, on his one-for-one program. And we were thinking about how kids in the hospital get given these warm, hand-knit beanies. And so we started talking to the local children's hospitals about giving them money or giving them products that we were going to make to give to the kids. And they identified that as being a great idea, especially the University of Minnesota Masonic Children's Hospital, who we first talked to, was over the moon about that idea. They loved it because they said they got given hats to give to the kids, but they were all not uniform. And being that like one kid would get one and another kid would get the other, there'd be jealousy or other things going on. Plus, being handmade, they couldn't control the quality or the um, consistency and uh, cleanliness of the product. And so by us manufacturing these beanies, still making them look handmade, making them stylish and colorful like the kids would want, they thought it was a, a great idea. And so how did you choose the children with cancer cause? Did you have a particular background in that or was that just something sort of randomly chosen at the time? It was done from our own research. We identified it as being a population of people that are under-supported, and we wanted to be able to help them. Now, we had our own family and friend connections to people that had gone through cancer, not particularly pediatrics, but it was more about wanting to help the large population. We were inspired by how many people in our communities go through cancer and having known a few of them. But it wasn't a personal decision. It was done out of the idea that we wanted to help a population in need that was oftentimes not being supported. And so we launched we launched our one-for-one one program, having figured out those details. And that's when the business kicked off. And how did you choose to distribute your product? So first we had to set up a Facebook page, see what people thought about it and other social media accounts. So we launched those. And we knew it was going to be successful just based on that because the other class projects were getting a couple hundred likes in the first week or so. And in the first night of launching it, we got over 400 likes on our page. So we knew that as a good identifier that we'd be successful. But then we had to go purchase 400 hats. And the problem there was is the teacher's requirement was that you couldn't spend over $700 on this project. They didn't want us to lose money. Um, but we knew to buy 400 hats so we could sell 200 and give away 200 was going to cost us $3,500. And so we went out to friends and family and asked for 50 to $500 from each one of them and got a group of them together. And they were our initial loans that we started the company with uh, soon after we paid them back after selling the first 200 hats. But our teachers were worried because they didn't think by the end of the semester we'd be able to sell all 200 hats and be able to pay those people back. They were worried about it. We launched sales Thanksgiving weekend, and we set up a table outside of my parents' restaurant in St. Paul Cafe Latte to sell the hats. We also went to all our friends and family to sell hats. But what was cool is just talking to complete strangers 
we sold about 100 of the hats at that table. And so we sold out of all of our hats we had to sell in two days. And that was just remarkable to us. We were like, okay, this is cool. We started getting purchase orders for more. We went back and got a larger business loan from all of these individuals of $10,000 to buy the next 800 hats that we were going to start with and to create some signage and stuff like that. We paid them back after we had sold those and we just kept running with this. I dropped out of college after that semester and uh, this has been an incredible life's work and great education as well. That is for sure. Were people buying the hats originally because of the mission that you had the benefit to the children with cancer, or were they buying it because they wanted a beanie? I believe both. I think we created a nice looking beanie, one that they had not quite seen before that was stylish and had a cool design on it. Um, also, they were identifying with a cause that anybody could identify with and wanting to help kids battling cancer. And they understood what we were going to do. They understood we were going to give away the same hat that they were purchasing and getting for themselves. And so it was a really cool program. It was, it was great from both angles. And so it was hard for anybody to say no. And how many employees or how many helpers did you have, let's say in that first six months? In our first six months, we had, I believe, took on one intern, possibly two interns at that time that helped us do anything from go set up tables because we were doing every guerrilla style marketing event that we could trying to sell our products and spread awareness. And so, yeah, we had two to start and that kind of cycled in and out. We had others come on as, as it went through the first few years. And then I believe in 2014 was our first full-time employee at the end of the year that we brought on. And how many employees do you have now? Now we have 16. And what are your total revenues right now? In 2016, we did $21.5 million. That is absolutely astonishing. It was a great year, and now it's set our forecast pretty high. We're projecting to do somewhere around $45 million this year, which we'll be able to, depending on how our expenses work out, um, we generate now our funding for our nonprofit partners comes from 50% of our net profit. And so that will probably be about a $3 million contribution we're able to do this year. Last year was $1.5 million. Holy mackerel. How did you come up with the name? The name Love Your Melon, it, it didn't just come into our heads immediately. We didn't just generate this brilliant idea. First, it's an interesting story. We started thinking about how we were going to make these beanies. And since it was childhood cancer that we were supporting, um, the fight against the color for childhood cancer awareness is is gold And so we we're gonna make these bright yellow beanies and then donate the money What we realized is people probably wouldn't want a bright yellow beanie that much and the kids especially would want more colors when we were giving them the hats to choose from and so the yellow had also tied in with the class projects name and some of the requirements It was a lemonade stand project and so it worked for them to be bright yellow and we were going to call it love your lemon because it looked like everybody was wearing a bright yellow lemon on their head but we that was just all because of the class requirements um we convinced our teachers that didn't make so much sense and since there were the same letters in melon as lemon they let us change the name to love your melon because 
it made sense. It, it meant to people that no matter if you have lost your hair from pediatric cancer treatment or if you still have your hair or whatever, if you're part of this community, uh, it's sharing love together and supporting these kids that are in need. And so it was an evolution of a name that ended up coming to mean something that was very beautiful, but uh, had really basic beginnings. So Zachary, your original assumptions about the concept of a love your melon, those proved accurate all along since the very beginning, obviously. I mean, it, this really took off early, did it not? Yes, it did. We've, uh, we've grown very quickly and and it's been because of all of our great supporters and people that are telling our story and spreading awareness every day. So here we are in the Tell Me How segment of the podcast where we aim to get to the heart of the matter regarding key issues for aspiring entrepreneurs. Zachary, let's talk about raising capital. Did you originally raise money for Love Your Melon? It sounded like you did in those early days. Was that equity capital or was that mainly loans? And at what point did you consider equity capital, if at all? That was solely debt loans to our initial investors. They would loan us the money and we'd promise to pay it back in a given time period with interest. And we've stuck to that model. Um, now we're currently working with big banks. We've moved on from those private individuals to getting bank financing but we have not yet touched uh, venture capital or private equity for, for money or investors even. We've never done any series of rounds of funding. And so that for us has allowed us to make the decisions that we need to make to run our business uh, appropriately. Yeah, that's terrific that you did not have to raise any equity capital. And there are a few different reasons why that worked. One of them being that were USA made. If we were making these hats abroad, I would have foreseen needing significantly more capital than what we needed, but we had quick production times from when we would place the order to when we would have to pay for it and then uh, sell it. And oftentimes we could sell it before we had to pay for it because of our terms. There wasn't a large order going out six months in advance before we could sell it. Um, it was working with these manufacturers in the US to be able to turn this quickly, and we never overextended ourselves. So the money that we got invested through these loans from private individuals and then soon banks was all going into inventory. All the money that we needed to grow the business, spend on advertising and such, we were taking from our profit um, to do that. Do you anticipate raising money from investors, equity capital in the next several years, or do you still plan to avoid that? It's gonna depend on what we need to grow. At this time, we have no plans to. We can accomplish our goal of uh, generating about $45 million in revenue this year without it, with bank financing alone. Um, obviously, there's reasons why too, other than just needing the money, and it'll be something we consider as we go along, such as needing the expertise that comes with investors or funds putting money in. But for, the, for now, there are no plans to. Were there any challenges with raising the debt capital that you needed in the past? Yes, even summer of 2016, which was kind of like a, it was a big jump in, in inventory that we needed, similar to this year, but we hadn't done it yet. Um, 
now we, we know how it went last year and we can plan ahead more and, and get it done earlier on. But last year got tight. I mean, we were building inventory significantly that wasn't going to sell until October. And so there were a few months there that were tight before we could secure the bank financing that we needed, which came in September. Yeah, that's for sure. Let's switch gears and talk about finding a production source, somebody that can help you manufacture. How did you go about finding a manufacturer for your headwear and your various other products? We started with um, searching online. It came from the inspiration of a few of my family members. I went to dinner with them. and At the time, I was debating, debating whether or not to make the hats abroad or in the U.S., and the inclination to go abroad was because we couldn't find the kind of product we wanted in the United States. But then at this family dinner, we got the laptop out and we just started researching more and it happened that my sister-in-law was pretty good at finding some U.S. manufacturers and we found this knit products company out in Portland, Oregon and they were they were making this this beanie um, and so we got samples of it and branded it, put our logo on it and uh, the patch which was a cool feature and that became our product. So Portland, we, we still work with that manufacturer out there. Um, currently, they make all of our kids' beanies, but their volume has been uh, significantly lower than what meets our demand. And so we've supplemented that by developing our own manufacturing with uh, a company called Minnesota Knitting Mills in Mendota Heights that produces all of our adult beanies, our knit scarves as well. When you found your two manufacturers, were there any issues that came up during production and how did you deal with that? Throughout our relationships with manufacturers over the past four years, there have been complications that have come up at numerous times. And a lot of it has had to do with um, supplying uh, our demand because U.S. manufacturing um, is certainly not <clears throat> where it needs to be at in comparison to what can be done overseas. So our, our manufacturers have been great at working with us through it, but at certain times it's been, it's been a struggle to build this fast enough to meet, our, to meet our demand, and that's why customers have seen our products be sold out for such long periods of time, um, because we're making them as fast as possible, but U.S. manufacturing is not where it needs to be yet. Now, we've been able to grow it, and I think we've had a significant impact on U.S. manufacturing ourselves. And to quantify it, we can say that our manufacturing and fulfillment pieces contribute to about 120 U.S. manufacturing and fulfillment jobs. Wow, that is terrific. We're able to produce about 100,000 knit beanies a month, um, which is which is significant at our current capacity. We're going to go up to 200,000 units per month, which is uh, a pretty big jump, but in comparison to the jump we had to make from like 10,000 to 100,000, now that we know how to do it, it's much easier. And uh, our manufacturers are willing and know that we're going to do what we say we're going to do on the sales side and, and getting the program to run. Sure. And for those listeners, or keeping in mind the listeners that are considering getting into some sort of soft goods business, do you have any key pieces of advice for them as they seek out a manufacturing partner? Yes, go with USA Made. Unless you need to make a highly technical jacket or 
and a product that really only overseas production can handle, don't be afraid to make it in the U.S. People inherently value it, but in addition, it helps run your business in a much more efficient way. You don't deal with boat times, airship times. You're dealing with people that are in need of your business and uh, very willing to work with you. I think U.S. manufacturing is attributed to a significant amount of our success, especially in the way that we weren't able to overcommit ourselves too far in advance. Yeah, that's really terrific. You can avoid customs and the lead times and the communication issues that often come up when you're dealing with overseas. That's fantastic. And we deal with overseas manufacturers for promotional goods. And uh, I got to tell you, it's just even the language barrier it makes it difficult. Uh, not being able to see the manufacturing plant makes it difficult for wristbands or stickers or whatever else that that's getting done. Um, now there's certain cases where that's literally the only place you can get it made. The skinny wristbands that we have for promotional items uh, that we give out, you can't even make them in the U.S. The manufacturing doesn't exist yet. And that's actually similar to how we were dealing with these nip beanies earlier on in the process was that really couldn't get them made in the volumes that we needed to. And so it was frustrating for a while not being able to supply the demand, but we grew it slowly. And I think that has inherently led to our success by by doing it as a process in contributing to U.S. jobs. Yeah. I don't know if you remember, but you guys contacted me, gosh, three, four years ago. might have been longer. I think Alec, your professor, suggested you contact me, and I think I gave you a couple of names for some brokers for overseas manufacturing. Do you remember that? I do, yes. Yeah. Was I talking to you or your other partner? No, I believe that was me. Oh, and, fun. And we evaluated them. We even got a sample and decided it wasn't the route to go. Yeah, interesting. Talk about your distribution model. You don't go through any retailers, do you? Is it just direct? Uh, currently, it's probably about 99% of sales are direct through our website. But what we're going to be launching on April 1st are two new programs, one being a wholesale program for boutique shops, one store up to 50 stores on average to limit our uh, limit our relationships to that. And then also our custom and co-branding program that's launching at the same time where people can get a custom or co-branded beanie for their 5K run or for their employee gifts for the holidays or whatever event use that they have for it. And we have done some really cool case studies on our work with uh, Lululemon and Cambria and a few other great companies, even Forbes, Forbes magazine that are using these beanies to get people in their doors um, or participating in their events. And uh, you're going to see some great ones coming up. That's terrific. And why did you consider selling through boutique retailers? Uh, we think we'll, it'll preserve our story and our attempt to raise awareness as much as possible because boutique retail shop owners and their employees, when they purchase our hats, are the most inclined to share the story of Love Your Melon. And that's what's most important to us. Um, preserves our integrity of our brand. Plus, we've gotten so many requests from them. At this point, it's just it'd be hard to continue saying no. For the first time, we have the inventory to supply both online demand and boutique shop demand, as well as this custom program. So for the first time, we get to look at expanding because 
online is finally getting fulfilled by capacity. What we're going to see happen is it going from 99% online, and that's just to cover our case studies we've done and other test runs with boutique shops for the 1%. But that's going to grow to be about 15 to 20% of our business is wholesale and uh, our custom program. Interesting. And how do you plan to support those boutique retailers or even sell to them? Do you have an existing internal sales force that will be doing that? Or will you just sort of carefully choose those retailers through other networks or connections? So we currently have a pretty substantial list of shops that have just reached out to us to request it because they've heard about it, they've seen it, they've wanted to do it. And so we've created that list. And as soon as the program launches, all those retailers will have an opportunity to participate. Additionally, we're going to do an outreach program, most likely with handwritten letters to boutique shops all across the country, like introducing the story to them. Because what we think we can do for them is provide an opportunity for them through social media to get people in their doors to check out their boutique, to purchase other products. Because of the inherent nature of how Uh, We have sold out so quickly out of our products online, people will perceive as being able to go get a Love Your Melon Beanie at their local like mom and pop boutique shop as like one of their only opportunities to do so. And so we've already sold the product essentially from our own marketing, our own advertising. And what we're doing is getting those people into their doors to go pick up that beanie but then most likely probably purchase something else while they're there, uh, engage in their community and have conversation about what Love for Melon is and, and how good of a company it is in our work that we do to support kids battling cancer. Let's talk about setting your price a little bit. I think a lot of new entrepreneurs go about mishandling or misjudging what they need to set their price at early on. Do you think you did a good job in setting price for your product in the early days and and how have you made adjustments to that if at all yeah we were very careful in our intentions about at what price point we would start with because we knew it would be difficult to go up from our price that we set we also knew that if we didn't price the beanies high enough with them being usa made and with the cause that we were trying to support being able to give away one for one people would perceive the product as cheap if they didn't cost a certain amount. And we probably couldn't afford to do what we wanted to do if we didn't anyway. Um, So we were very careful about picking our price and sticking with it. Um, There have been some fluctuations, especially with new product uh, that we brought on and just having like a cohesive product line and making everything make sense and work with our margins. So there is some fluctuation and sometimes we price things too high and drop them down. But uh, it's been a it's been a good process of figuring it out, and we feel very confident in our pricing structure. And it's really necessary to be able to do the work that we want to do to help kids battling cancer. I mean, without without our margin being significant enough, there wouldn't be any left at the end of the year to give as fifty percent of our profit. So we want to preserve that as much as possible, so that we can have the impact that we want to have, and customers will be able to. Uh, identify with that and then thus support us more. Yeah, and and 50%, that is such a generous contribution. We feel, though, as it's fair, um, and in our work to give back and make sure that we are 
doing what we say we're going to do and we're authentic in every way that that's our that's our minimum we want to give every year and we typically beat that in the past two years we've given away substantially more than than 50 percent even so you've grown tremendously in the last several years and one of the curiosities that I've had, probably the biggest one, is how in the world did you effectively create awareness for your product and demand for your product to grow this year to a 45 or aiming for a $45 million company and now what a mid $20 million company? I mean, that is truly absolutely astonishing. What has been your secret to creating awareness and demand for your product? Our marketing plan has been to focus on doing whatever events and promotions that we can do to raise awareness. It's a guerrilla marketing style approach where when we started, it really was as simple as, okay, let's get a folding table and grab our product and get some info cards and wristbands to hand out and let's go set it up at whatever event we can do. And that really with Brian and myself and our couple interns we had at any given point, that's all we would do together. And, uh, we were posting on social media, running all of our accounts on our own, and getting as many cool new things as possible. I mean, we've over the years done a nationwide bus tour where we bought an old hockey coach and converted it into a tour bus and drove around the country giving away hats to kids dressed as superheroes and selling our hats on college campuses over a 75-day period. We've tried to get billboards, and oftentimes we get them for really cheap or donated, and We've done every single uh, promotional event that we can around the Midwest or even even further, especially with those tours where we just set up um, at childhood cancer-related events or outside restaurants or at golf tournaments and, and whatnot just to get the word out. Now, our marketing has gotten effectively much larger, but with the same mentality of trying to do cool, really authentic things to raise awareness. Um, now we just do it on a large scale. And so our focus is on social media still. We we make posts and we boost them. We push out advertisements that look like posts on Facebook and Instagram. And it's just a very natural approach. Uh, most people that follow the Love Your Melon accounts are essentially following like another one of their friends. But uh, the friend is Love Your Melon, the company that they follow and and being able to see the work that myself and Brian and our team are doing every day on there is uh, why they follow it and why they support us. And why do you think people are buying the product and supporting the product? I asked that question earlier, referring to the early days when you started selling the product. But now do you have a better sense for that? Yeah, especially with the amount of products that customers are buying, like individual customers are purchasing multiple beanies, multiple scarves, getting color coordinated options, getting palm beanies with different color palms. I mean, last year we came out with over 2,500 different SKUs. We release typically a couple hundred products a month right now of new colors, new designs, new styles, and not just returning ones, but actual new ones. People are buying headbands and t-shirts and long sleeves because they're a part of their style. And I think there's two elements to it. They love the product. They love that it's USA made. They love that it's stylish and, and looks fashionable, but they also love what it says to the outside world that they're a part of this community of people that care. 
And so there's multiple elements going on there and it's making for a great customer experience and they, they feel very supportive and as a part of this community as they should be um, because we're all in this trying to make a difference together. Are you sort of set up now almost like a fashion company? If I walked into your offices, would I see designers and people that are choosing colorways and silhouettes and and textures and fabrications and things like that? Exactly. We essentially have a five-person design and manufacturing team. And so it's a significant part of our company is creating designs, creating colorways, getting the product ready to go to the manufacturer for production, and then finding from our current manufacturers and new manufacturers how to make it. It's anywhere from our knit products, beanie scarves, blankets, and mittens to all the way down to like jewelry and long sleeve t-shirts and, and quarter zips and all of these other items that people are purchasing because it speaks to them that they enjoy the product and they enjoy what it means to wear it. Yeah, that sounds really, really fun. What is it like managing and leading a group of creative people like that? And did you ever perceive yourself to be or foresee yourself to be doing something like that? I knew that it would be an interesting learning process, figuring out how to delegate and figuring out how to run a team. But I never knew that it was going to be so much fun. Like the people that I get to work with, the people that work for Love Your Melon are incredibly talented, dedicated individuals. And everybody owns their own responsibility. I've intentionally kept it to be a pretty small team, even with the revenue numbers we'll do this year, we can do that with like a 16 to 18 person team because everybody owns their own responsibilities and gets the work done that they need to. I mean, I oftentimes don't have to check in with them for weeks and they'll have gotten so much stuff done because if they didn't, there'd be so many people that uh, were relying on them that didn't get what they needed for them to have done. And so the team of people that we've got, they are extremely skilled and talented, but I would attribute most of our success to simply their hard work, their desire and ability to stay late, to continue to give this everything they've got. And, uh, and that's why we're able to accomplish so much. Zachary, let's get personal on a few topics. We just sort of got started getting into that with that last question, but it seems that 99 out of 100 people just talk about starting a business, but they never start one. Starting a business is pretty unusual. What motivates a person like you, Zachary Quinn, to stop just talking about launching a business and then actually go out and start a business like Love Your Melon? I had a great opportunity to do so as a part of this class project. And once I realized how awesome it was, I got to convince my parents that it was a good idea to drop out. It started as a gap year and turned into my life's work in Love Your Melon. And so I took the opportunity that I had at hand and ran with it. Um, it's been an incredible process learning about how to run a business. I always knew that it was something I wanted to do. I wanted to do this as well as possibly be into politics or be a lawyer. But this has really been my calling because I think working with a team, being able to 
have great people around me has been what I always desired. And uh, it's been a great process of learning. To what extent was being exposed to your mother and father owning the restaurant, how did that influence Love Your Melon? Well, even as a kid growing up, I was often better working with and talking to adults than I was with other kids. I just enjoyed it more. And so that I can attribute to my parents having raised me in a certain way and us spending a lot of time at fundraisers and restaurants as they were in that stage of their lives. And uh, I got to watch them be entrepreneurs and, and run their own business. And that's what I desired to do. So I, I got to say it's, it's significantly attributed to them. My dad and I go there all the time, by the way. It's always been our favorite. You know, they, they found that concept out in Seattle, which is interesting because I found my beanies, the first ones out in Portland, so pretty close, but they were out on a trip like 35 years ago, maybe even a little longer than that, and they saw this cafe and saw espressos being made and all these great food items, like cafeteria style, and they brought that to Minnesota. They were the first people to have an espresso machine in Minnesota, and uh, they started with a, a coffee shop, Haagen-Dazs concept, ice cream store, and then moved into bread and chocolate and moved into Cafe Latte as their two restaurants in the subsequent years, and it was because they were offering authentic food to people that was at a reasonable price point. Um, they've been able to succeed through throughout recessions in the last 35 years, throughout throughout successes, throughout failures, and, and be able to, to do what they love to do and support hundreds of employees that were working for them. So I think similar to that, how I can attribute our success the most is to our authenticity. And I definitely got that inspiration from my parents. Did your success surprise you? At first, yes, because it was happening so quickly. But as a whole, I knew that I could probably run a company if I set my mind to do it. But how everything snowballed in the beginning, it was fairly surprising. Now, knowing where I wanted to get to and the benchmarks and goals we were setting for ourselves, the, su the success became fulfilling to what we had set our minds to, what we had dreamed to do. And it wasn't surprising. Now, in the past year, we've blown out of so many of our goals um, and forecast and beaten them substantially to the point that in the last few months, the success has been surprising again. And that, that's kind of what's interesting about business is you, you have these, you have ups and downs and you just got to deal with it as it comes. But I mean, it's been, it's been incredible these past few months and it's set some significant goals for us that we never thought we could have for the next year and the impact that we'll be able to have. I mean, our initial goal was just to give a hat to every kid battling cancer in America. We were able to achieve that and we continue to do that, give away about 30,000 hats a year to make sure that we're fulfilling all the needs of all the newly diagnosed patients and, and whatnot. But then our goal was to give away a million dollars and we hit that that year. And so now it's, it's kind of, it's wild to think about. It's surprising at times to think about being able to give away $3 million this year and to continue to do the work that we get to do. But it's been the product of a lot of hard work, um, especially from my team. And 
being able to do this is incredible. What has been your biggest joy so far since you started the company? I have to attribute that to our ability to introduce making a difference to others. Um, we figured out a few years in that our mission was not only to help make a difference in the lives of kids battling cancer, but also help show other people that they could make their own difference. And that's how the buy one, give one concept really initially ran because it was showing somebody the true impact that they could make and being able to purchase a hat and then another one being able to have given to a kid battling cancer. So it was like inherently showing them the difference they could make in purchasing a product. But then that evolved and what it became was our college ambassador program. We currently have over 13,000 ambassadors around the country who are avenues for donating our beanies every year. And so that's how we get 30,000 hats personally delivered by superheroes every year is by our ambassador program. And seeing the ability of all these college students at over 850 institutions, I think it is around the country, be able to learn that they can make their own difference, that they can be a part of having an impact on somebody else's life, that is the cool part. Because thinking about what that group of 13,000 people will go out to do in their lives to make a better community is incredible. It's really inspiring. It really is. Just that compounding effect, just with that basic little idea that you had, that fledgling idea back at St. Thomas, and now you've sort of uh, created just a, a plethora of people supporting that. Yeah, it's been awesome. Yeah. And even though you've done so well so far, there must be, and there are always frustrations being the leader of an organization and starting a business. What do you think have been your top frustrations? For a while, it was fulfillment because every day I would think about how we weren't getting out hats fast enough to customers, their products and orders that they had purchased fast enough. And not having good customer service was a huge frustration for a long time. And I think we've successfully solved that now. I'm not sure that that will ever be perfect, but we've gotten really good at it. But there were times where we'd sell 2,500 hats in a day. And this, this was pretty early on within the first few years, but we would have to then go ship those hats out for the next two weeks it would take us as we were doing it ourselves. And so there are frustrations there just really with not being able to do things exactly how I wanted them done. And what it's taken is finding good partners, people that are running great companies and are really good at what they do to be able to fulfill the needs of our consumers. Zachary, many entrepreneurs, even seasoned ones, experience self-doubt as they go along their entrepreneurial journey. How much self-doubt have you had, if any, and how have you dealt with it? In an effort to not sound too egotistical, I don't believe that I've experienced a lot of self-doubt. I think it's because I've had so many good people around me to support the work that I'm doing. There were times where it was like, like when I dropped out of school first time, when people stopped purchasing beanies because it was the summer and <laughs> baseball caps didn't sell nearly as well because everybody has baseball caps that they already like. Yeah. And so there was there was doubt there. I don't know if it was in, in myself, but it was definitely in whether or not the beanies would continue selling. And so I actually went back to school that next fall. And I've always gotten good grades or had gotten good grades, but not that semester because as soon as I went back to school, everything ramped up again because it got cold. 
and people wanted to buy beanies and it was the holidays and we launched the bus tour. And so it was clear that I could not be in school any longer while still running the company. And so that's when I dropped out for good was after that. And it was clear to me that though I was learning some in those classes, I wasn't paying attention to them the way I needed to be. And I needed to focus on what my passion was and and go the route of running my own company for a while and having the education come from that. How has starting your own business changed you as a person, if it has at all? I think it's made me more patient, more understanding of how problems need to be worked out. I think it's made me a better friend, a better better son in a lot of ways. I've been able to find myself through doing it and what I'm good at. And so that's given me a lot of confidence that, I don't know, in school you feel a little lost. And I always felt really lost because it didn't feel like any of my classes really, like especially the work for those classes, homework and whatnot, had no purpose. I felt as though we were just like playing a game and it was, at the end of it, it wasn't going to matter. And that's why I think I latched onto this almost immediately because it was like, okay, go start a business for this class project, create something, make some money off of it. We added in, we wanted to make a difference too, but uh, it was something real and tangible. We could go set up an LLC. We could like continue to pass the class project and that fulfillment that that gave me to be doing something that could really have an impact on society, on others, on being able to create products or things that people wanted to wear and wanted to support our company. That was the coolest moment for me. What do you think you've learned most about yourself since starting Love Your Melon? That I'm pretty good at hiring because I've found all these good people that have brought on other good people that are really incredible team members and really support all the great work that this company is doing right now. Um, so whatever I did or we did to find them was uh, one of our greatest successes. What did your parents think when you started to consider stopping your schoolwork and getting out of college? What were those initial conversations like? Yeah, as, as I said, it kind of first started as a gap year that just evolved into full-time and indefinite term. And so my parents have been very supportive because them being entrepreneurs in their own right understood what I wanted and what I needed as a person to really go do something real. And I don't think it hurt that them not having to contribute to the financial commitment of college if I could go do it on my own. They appreciated that as well. So, I mean, at certain points it was like, as parents they wanted to make sure that they were making the right decisions to help me do the best I could do. But then as growth began to unfold and just the momentum started to go, it was like, it was hard to it was hard to not be on board with this and they've they've been incredibly supportive. I know that at certain times it's probably even been overwhelming for them as it has been for probably all of us. Um, but they've been incredible support pieces for me and and for our company. Who's had the most influence on you in your life, either professionally or personally? Well, I'd say Brian, my co founder. Him and I have learned a lot about one another and been able to create this company together and get all these great people on board. So influence-wise, yes, Brian, also my father, and there have been other great mentors along the way. 
Do you think you would have gone in the restaurant business if you didn't start this? Yeah, my older brother, Bryce, who's currently in the restaurant business with them, he's about 13 years older than me, quite a, quite a bit older. He probably wouldn't like me to say this, but yeah, if I hadn't started this, I'd be in there working with him. It'd be a, probably an interesting family dynamic, but he's doing a great job running the businesses, and uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily know how it would work out, but I think eventually there's a part of me that will want to go back to that and help run the restaurants at a at a time that's right and whether that's in doing like an e-commerce platform for them or creating uh wholesale to to other stores or restaurants for them i think there's a value that i could bring to the table there we have a couple things in common we've started consumer product businesses but i too grew up with a father who was successful in his food service management restaurant entrepreneurship so we have some background there that we'll have to talk about at another time finally did i miss any questions that you feel like you'd like to provide answers to or do you have any closing pieces of advice for our aspiring entrepreneur listeners no this has been a great interview Uh, Thank you for all the good questions and providing the direction for conversation. Zach, you've been such a great guest offering great stories and advice to our entrepreneur listeners. Thank you for championing this hugely noble cause, just enormous and fantastic and so beneficial. And thanks for sharing your experiences with us today. Yeah. And for all your listeners out there, go get a beanie. And if you're in St. Paul, stop by and get a piece of tres leche cake at the family business. It's pretty, pretty darn good. Absolutely. It's, it's so top. Cafe Latte, St. Paul, Grand Avenue. Check it out. Thanks, Zach. Have a great day. Thank you, John. Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows, or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes. Join us for our next Product Launch Rebel episode, where we'll continue to reveal insider tips on how to launch and grow your physical product-based business.